Welcome. I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, my name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. First, let me go ahead and apologize. We have an uh, overwhelmingly large crowd today, so I apologize for those of you who have to stand and for those of you uh, who got here and uh, we had already run out of lunches. Uh, again, we had a, a larger-than-expected crowd. Uh, the good news, however, is, though, for, for those of you who did not get a lunch or even those of you who did, uh, and want to hear some more, uh, another Cato event. We have another one lined up tomorrow. Uh, there's flyers for it outside. It's called the Marketplace for Democracy. It's going to take place here in Rayburn in B338 tomorrow at noon. Uh, and that'll give you a perspective of uh, certainly the election process, uh, how elections have become less competitive over time, and, and the impact of campaign finance reform. It should be a really good session. And uh, I will make a personal guarantee that you guys will, will get a lunch and a seat if you do come out tomorrow. Um, a couple things I want to mention real quick before we get started. Uh, there is a, a sign-up sheet outside for Cato Today, which is a daily email that we send out. Uh, it's, it's a quick briefing of policy papers that, that we have published, uh, op-eds uh, we have written, and events that we're having. Uh, it's a good way to get a, a daily briefing on what's going on at, at, at uh, Cato and and uh, a quick synopsis of the issues that we think are important. So if you want to sign up for that daily, uh, that daily email list, there is a sign-up sheet outside. I encourage you to do so. Also, I want to make sure you guys are aware of the Cato Handbook for Policy. Uh, this is a good A to Z overview of pretty much all the issues you'll be dealing with here in Congress. It's a good way to familiarize yourself with issues that, that you're, uh, you're just getting started with or, uh, or a good reference book to pull off the shelf when you, uh, when you have a, uh, a paper to write or... or uh, or a speech to write for your boss. Uh, we do provide these free to all congressional offices, so hopefully you guys already have one. But if you need another or for some reason don't have one, just let a Cato staffer know, and we'll be sure to get one delivered to your office. Um, with that, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, our first speaker today is Congressman Jeff Flake, uh, who is currently serving his third term in Congress. Uh, Congressman Flake probably needs very little introduction at this point because he has certainly been one of the out, out, most outspoken critics of earmarks, of wasteful spending, of agricultural subsidies. And uh, I think he's earned a strong reputation for being a, uh, a, a real firebrand in Congress and somebody that, that a lot of people uh, look up to. Um, prior to, to uh, being elected in Congress, uh, Congressman Flake was the executive director of the Goldwater Institute, which, which many of you are probably familiar with. It's an excellent free market think tank out in Phoenix. And with that, I'll go ahead and turn things over to Congressman Flake. Well, thank you. And my thanks to Cato for organizing this event. Uh, those of us on Capitol Hill are always deeply indebted to Cato for, for what they do on a number of issues. I've worked closely with uh, Dan Griswold recently over the past couple of years on immigration reform, always on size of government issues and other things. Cato has been great, so I just want to thank you again for all that you're doing. I appreciate uh, this opportunity to talk about farm policy. Now, for those who don't know, and it was mentioned, I was born and raised on a high desert cattle ranch in northeastern Arizona, uh, where I come from, which is a long way from here. I was taught to never trust a man that doesn't have manure on his boots. But uh, I don't have my boots on today, but uh, you never lose your farm roots. I, I still believe that a man who showers in the morning does more for the common good than a man who showers at night. <laughs> but uh, now that I've demeaned my current profession, uh, 
I'm here to tell you that you can be from a farming background and still believe that U.S. agricultural policy needs to head in a new direction. With the collapse of the Doha round, there are many calling for a simple extension of the soon-to-expire 2002 Farm Bill for a variety of reasons, which I'll discuss here. Next year's Farm Bill reauthorization must not be a, mixed a missed opportunity for serious reforms to our agricultural policies and the results that they can deliver. That's why I'm here to talk about reasons and results. First and foremost, the farm subsidy program needs to be reformed because it's simply too expensive. Over the last decade, we've spent somewhere near $160 billion on subsidies. Last year alone, we spent more than $20 billion, and that was with farmers nationwide seeing three years of record incomes. According to USDA estimates, we're looking at a similar or higher level of spending this year, with corn alone estimated to receive more than $9 billion in subsidy support. Supporting commodity prices and farm incomes has been a fundamental part of our farm policy since the 1930s. I'm not sure how incomes were compared back then, but I doubt if average farm income was as much as 25% higher than the national in income average as it is now. In, 1980, or I'm sorry, in 1996, Congress passed the Freedom to Farm Act and set farm policy on a fiscally responsible and free trade-oriented course, only to be followed by veering off that course with record farm spending on farm programs and just a few years later, passing the 2002 Farm Bill that paved the way for spending like we're seeing now. I also would note that uh, for those who consider ourselves Reagan conservatives, uh, this was a particular blow. The 1996 Farm Bill was instituted to wean farmers off to uh, set a free trade-oriented course, uh, a glide path off subsidies. Reagan used to, to warn about trading freedom for security. This was a Freedom to Farm Act. We were meant to go toward freedom. Yet in 2002, we came back and passed the Farm Security Act. Uh, so we not only gave in on policy, I think we also gave in on rhetoric. Uh, we are trading, in a very real sense, uh, freedom for security, and it's a fleeting sense of security. When the 2002 Farm Bill was passed, we were told that it would be the end of disaster supplemental spending. However, right now there are those urging the passage of a $6.5 billion uh, package in disaster relief, and groups are advocating for including a permanent disaster title in the Farm Bill. Without an emphasis on reforms, my fear is that the next Farm Bill reauthorization will continue the spending trend and push us even further off course. Even if you can hold your nose at the cost of the program, even the most ardent supporter of farm payments has to concede that there are well-known implementation problems associated. Simply put, the program provides disproportionate benefits to the few, some of whom aren't even farmers. The commodity crops receive a lion's share of federal payments, while non-commodity crops receive little or nothing. In addition, the CRS reported that only a third of farmers receives farmers uh, receive subsidy payments. The notion that all farmers out there need subsidies is simply false. Only a third receive subsidy payments. USDA reported that the largest 7.5% of farms received more than half of all federal payments in 2004. Apparently, farmer, farming isn't even required to receive farm payments. According to a recent Washington Post series on farm subsidies, since 2000, the federal government has paid more than $1 billion in direct payments for rice and other crops to individuals that do no farming whatsoever. Uh, 
but it isn't it wasn't just direct payments that were uh, documented to be wasteful in this uh, series the series also reported on millions of dollars in disaster relief that went to ranchers for disasters that occurred years prior or had nothing due to ranch or had nothing to do with ranching at all uh, there were incidents and stories of uh, of farmers in Texas and elsewhere who were claiming benefits uh, after the face, the space shuttle uh, blew up over Texas. That was whenever a county declares a, a disaster, that triggers some kind of, uh, of series that uh, allows farmers and ranchers to get some subsidies. Uh, so it's sim simply out of control. Uh, stories like these, as well as reports of farm payments, uh, uh, recipients like Ted Turner and Scotty Pippen, make the argument that nothing is wrong with U.S. farm, farm policy very difficult to defend. Now, beyond the extreme cost of the program and the problematic implementation issues, the farm policy detailed in the 2002 Farm Bill is at best inconsistent or incompatible with our international trade obligations. At, it, at its worst, U.S. farm policy uh, will continue to be a hurdle to future free trade agreements. Certain provisions of the U.S. cotton programs were also found by the WTO to violate rules that were agreed on previously. Whether we reach an agreement in the Doha round or not, there are changes that need to be made to U.S. farm policy to bring it into compliance with the cotton ruling. We eliminated the Step 2 cotton program, but that's not all the reform we need to make. Without addressing all the changes that need to be made due to the cotton case, we continue to leave ourselves open to retaliatory action from Brazil. Beyond simply addressing the WTO cotton case, we need to be realistic that, not being the, that uh, this will not be the last international challenge that we'll see the U.S. cotton program is likely not, or likely not to be the only U.S. program that could bring about challenges by other nations on the grounds that they don't comply with our international agreements. Other countries, emboldened by Brazil's victory, may choose to, further, to bring further WTO challenges that the Doha round has, now that the Doha round has collapsed instead of patiently waiting for reforms to our trade distorting practices. Now, with the collapse of the Doha round, it's likely that the emphasis will be placed on bilateral and regional free trade agreements as a means to open markets. Without significant reform to our protected agricultural markets, it is likely that we will continue, uh, that, that, that these agreements or that these subsidies will continue to be a hurdle to negotiating free trade agreements. And we're not just making up scary fireside stories here. It's actually happening. We saw it happen last year as we witnessed the U.S. sugar program and its supporters nearly sidelined CAFTA. The sugar industry in the U.S. represents a sliver of our economy, yet the protectionist program was front and center during the CAFTA negotiations. The administration bent over backwards to accommodate the sugar industry, proposing to allow these developed countries that they are proposing to allow these developing countries to supply only an additional 1% of our domestic market. Yet the U.S. sugar lobby responded with furious opposition to CAFTA, claiming it would doom family farms. This opposition put billions of dollars in additional exports for U.S. agriculture and other industries at risk. Now, continuing the, the existing subsidy payments and price support programs for agricultural commodities will only perpetuate our difficulties in opening up markets. Both the Brazil threats of retaliations against U.S. patents and the sugar industry jeopardizing export gains 
have begun to, to sow the seeds of discontent among domestic industries other than agriculture that don't enjoy the same protections. These are industries that only see the advantages of trade liberalization. We cannot continue to allow the existing farm programs to stand in the way of increasing our export market. Let me finish by talking briefly about results. We hear consistently that any changes to existing farm programs will result in the mass exodus of farms and businesses, that they'll go bankrupt at every turn. I flatly disagree. In the late 1980s, New Zealand voluntarily and unilaterally rid itself of most of the subsidies to farmers and opened its markets to foreign competition by dismantling both most important barriers. While the transition has been difficult for farmers, New Zealand reports that the benefits of reforms have led to an increase in efficiency and exports. In addition, it has been reported that estimates of forced exits from the market due to these reforms was widely overestimated. The New Zealand experiences with agricultural reform may or may not relate to any of the reform ideas that could be seen in the upcoming Farm Bill reauthorization. They are a smaller country that was in financial straits and were forced to address change through an abrupt shock reform to agricultural support and protections. However, I want to bring home what I think is a critical point to bear in mind as we consider changing the course of U.S. agricultural policy. A recent Penn State study, after reviewing international domestic farm policy, the case studies reported a key finding that I've known to be true ever since my days in Snowflake, Arizona. Policy farmers, uh, I'm sorry, policy makers and farm advocates generally underestimate the ability of farmers to adapt to changes in policy. Now, when I return, as I do quite often, uh, to the alfalfa field in Snowflake, where I lost the right end of my index finger at age five, I'm reminded that uh, farmers aren't simply hayseeds waiting by their mailbox, waiting to get paid to do nothing on their land. They're sophisticated, small, medium, and large business owners that deal with all phases of their businesses in a professional manner and have decades of experience and expertise at dealing with ever-changing marketplaces. I think it's time we start treating them with the respect they deserve. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me here today. Well, thank you, Congressman. Uh, what we're going to do is introduce our next speaker, um, and then uh, we'll take questions from the crowd for, for both of our speakers. Um, our next speaker is Sally James. Uh, Sally is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Um, she just joined us in 2006, earlier this year. Prior to that, she was uh, an executive officer in the uh, Office of Trade Negotiations in the Australian Government's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Uh, prior to that, she was a senior policy advisor in the Australian Government's Department the Australian Government's Department of Agriculture, Fisheries, and Forestry. Uh, Sally received her Bachelor's of Economics and her Master's of Economics degrees from the University of Adelaide, and she also holds a PhD in Agricultural Economics from the University of Western Australia in Perth. Sally? Thanks, Brandon. Oh, you're a lot taller than I am, you two gentlemen. Thanks a lot for coming along today, and thank you, Congressman, for your comments. 
Um, as a lot of you may know, at the end of last month at Cato, we hosted a, uh, a forum to discuss the prospects for reforming US agricultural policy on just the topic that we're here to discuss today. Um, as most of you will know, and as Congressman Flake mentioned, um, the Doha round of negotiations were suspended indefinitely in July, and things are not looking good for them being resuscitated anytime soon. And that's removed, hopefully only temporarily, one of the most promising sources um, of, of pressure for reforming uh, farm policy. But our forum, I guess, took a, a slightly different tack in, in aiming to examine prospects for reform of US agricultural policy, even in the absence of the market access gains that were being promised to American farmers as a condition for cutting domestic support. I hope to recap for you uh, today some of the points made at that forum, either by myself um, or maybe other Cato scholars previously or by other speakers at the forum. A live recording of that forum, by the way, either in podcast or in real uh, video, is available uh, from the Cato Centre for Trade Policy Studies website at www.freetrade.org. Um, there are also copies of previous Cato studies relating to US agricultural policy um, or there were copies at least at the side of the room. They may have all gone. A few people have asked me, actually, why Cato's Centre for Trade Policy Studies is taking an interest in the farm bill at all. Uh, apart from our interest in free markets everywhere, including in the US itself, we basically see agriculture as the most divisive issue in trade today. It's easily the most distorted sector with high tariffs and uh, in developed countries at least who can afford it, uh, large amounts of government support, uh, either through price supports or direct payments or other types of payments to farmers. On the other hand, developing countries who tend to have a comparative advantage in these products cannot afford to subsidise their agriculture sector and they face prohibitive tariffs uh, in many cases for their products abroad. The powerful agriculture lobby groups, particularly in the large developed countries, make reform politically difficult. I think we, we all recognise that. This is as true for the United States as it is for that other bogeyman of agricultural trade, the European Union. Uh, the US government subsidises certain farm commodities, the so-called program crops, um, through direct price supports and for tariff rate quotas that limit imports. Americans pay a high price for this ongoing government intervention in agricultural markets. Uh, the OECD uh, in, in Paris, uh, a study from them estimated in 2004 that U.S. farm programs transferred $16.2 billion from U.S. food consumers to producers. Uh, the support to U.S. farmers has also has costs for other industries in America, both domestically, um, those that focus domestically, I mean, and, and those who have increased market access abroad. Um, as Congressman Flake intimated, government subsidies to farmers have been a significant impediment to trade talks and to export opportunities for, for US industries. I'd like to just outline for you the three themes that our, our speakers at our event last month um, gave when talking about reform. Uh, firstly, ineffectiveness, the sense that farm programs, current farm programs, are not achieving their objectives. Only about 40% of farms receive government payments and over 90% of payments go to farmers of those five program crops. Um, which contribute just one-fifth of agricultural cash receipts, which is about the same, as Mike Johans made clear, as the specialty crops, that's like fruits and vegetables, that receive almost nothing from government coffers. 
uh, Cal Dooley, who's a CEO and president of the Food Products Association, a former congressman from California, spoke at our forum. And he quoted a Federal Reserve uh, Bank of Kansas study that found a negative correlation between the amount of farm subsidy payments in a rural county and job and population growth. Some farm programs, especially those for sugar and dairy, impede investment in development and innovation and undermine the competitiveness of U.S. food products manufacturers. The inequities and inefficiencies of the current farm programs have been getting a significant amount of press coverage recently, and most notably in the Washington Post Harvesting Cash series, which a lot of you may have seen. But I, I like to make clear these stories have been picked up outside the Beltway. Uh, the LA Times, the Minneapolis, uh, Minneapolis Star Tribune, the Des Moines, am I pronouncing that correctly, Des Moines Register, the Denver Post, Chicago Tribune, the Orlando Sentinel have all run editorials on the subject of reforming farm programs, uh, farm payments. The second theme was deficit reduction. Um, although one of our speakers, Bob Thompson, did not think it was a binding constraint based on his past experience. Uh, farm programs are costly, and as Agriculture Secretary Mark Johans, who also spoke at our forum, said, there is truly no free lunch. One way or another, the cost will work its way through our economic system. These programs are essentially a form of a regressive taxation. It's a welfare program that transfers money from taxpayers to a favoured few, a favoured few, I might add, and as Congressman Flake mentioned, who earn more than the average household income. The US government has spent an average of $20 billion a year since 2000 on domestic support for farmers. Removing farm support would be expected to cause changes in the composition of agriculture and in the types and numbers of farms. So let's, let's not kid ourselves. We would expect increasing consolidation, for example. But we would also expect to see productivity improvements and diversification into higher value-added items and development of food processing capacity. All of our speakers also talked about the high land prices in agriculture. In many cases, because uh, expected future subsidies have been capitalised into the land values, and those high land values act as a barrier to entry to would-be farmers, uh, and we would expect that fall in land values as a result of um, removing subsidies would make entering farming or expanding operations easier. Thirdly, a theme that all of our speakers spent some time on uh, and a subject that's close to my heart as a trade policy scholar was the trade imperatives and specifically the threat of WTO litigation. Uh, the cotton case that um, Congressman Flake spoke about uh, showed that many aspects of US farm programs and not just those specifically related to cotton um, are vulnerable to adverse rulings in the WTO. Uh, as Bob Thompson at our forum said, no Doha deal means no peace clause. Uh, the US could have reformed its agricultural policy as part of the negotiations and gotten increased market access in return. Uh, but with the negotiations in suspension, uh, litigation will mean reform will be enforced anyway through the WTO, but with a fine in, in the, in the um, form of punitive tariffs imposed for good measure. In any case, the, the future of farming in America lies in market access abroad. Cal Dooley, a speaker at our forum, invited the audience to check each other out and come to the conclusions that Americans cannot possibly eat any more. 
the point, <laughs> the point was that an isolated market is not in America's interests. The growth lies in exports. Many of the farm programs and the trade barriers that prevent the growth of incomes abroad directly act against those interests because rising incomes mean more valuable markets for American products, not just farm products, other products as well. Some in the agriculture community see reforms and those who advocate them as being anti-farmer, as being an attempt to destroy rural communities. Congressman Flake gave his opinion on, on that assertion and I agree with him. I'd also refer those people who see us as anti-farmer to an excellent article that I, I stumbled across by accident while conducting my research. It was published by a Courtney Lowry on the New West Network website. I, I'd like to read you a quote from that story. The key to any business is diversification and adaptability. In fact, that's the key to survival for anyone or anything. What subsidies do is keep small farmers under the federal government's financial thumb long enough to get them in a rut and eventually they create their own demise. We've created a program that cuts a farmer's spirit and quiets his ingenuity. Subsidies effectively remove a farmer from the landscape because they force him to grow crops contrary to the soil, the climate and his own intuition tell him. This perhaps is the biggest insult of all. Courtney's not a Cato scholar, um, although she does show significant promise in that area. She's the daughter of a farmer who had to sell his farm. And my research has shown me many other examples of farmers who are seeing the, the damage farm subsidies can do. And I certainly agree with Congressman Flake that to see farmers as somehow so vulnerable that they could not cope without government support, it, it really isn't an insult to them. Uh, in a, and in any case, removing subsidies may not be anti-farmer. Uh, Congressman Flake spoke about the New Zealand experience, and that has shown that farmers can indeed survive and thrive in a liberalised agricultural market. Uh, the total factor productivity growth on farms there increased from 1.5% to 2.5% in the years following policy reform. And as an Australian, I can't tell you how much it kills me to hold up the New Zealanders as, a, as an example. Because much of the farm subsidies go to farmers who account for a relatively small share of US agricultural production, it's unlikely that the value of American farm production would fall by the full amount of the reduction in spending. So just in summing up, uh, we believe that Congress should seize the opportunity presented by the drafting of a new farm bill in 2007. This is a chance to fundamentally reshape US agricultural policy in a more market-friendly direction. That means no more price supports, deep cuts in commodity payments and unilateral reductions in trade barriers. That would save US taxpayers and consumers billions of dollars over the next decade, would yield environmental benefits by reducing overproduction and concentration of crops, and stimulate innovation and productivity on farms. Cutting subsidies and trade barriers would also raise incomes of farmers in poorer countries and reduce global poverty, contributing to a more hospitable climate abroad for US foreign policy. America's agricultural politics are relics of a bygone era that continually sacrifice the interests of consumers, producers and taxpayers in exchange for a self-defeating attempt to protect the interests of a minority of agricultural producers. Thank you.